This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Leonard Weiss is an exciting young conductor who has hit the stage. He's worked with the Canberra Sinfonia, the National Capital Orchestra, the Sydney, Queensland and Melbourne Symphony Orchestras, to name just a few, and has also worked with the likes of James Morrison and the Idea of North. He was recently the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's BSO Peabody Fellow, studying with Marin Alsop, and was also recognised by John Hopkins University as their rising star of 2020. And last year, he became the inaugural winner of the Conductor New South Wales Orchestral Early Career Fellowship with the Sydney Youth Orchestra in conjunction with Create New South Wales. I'm delighted to welcome Leonard Weiss to be in conversation with me today. Leonard, thanks so much for taking the time to come in. My pleasure, Simon. Thank you so much. So what is the Orchestral Fellowship from the SYO and how how are you going to um, do it for the first time or anyone's first time? Well, it's a great question. So this scaffold off a previous conducting development opportunity that was run solely by SYO and they've been very fortunate to partner with Create New South Wales to sort of expand the scope of what it can deliver and and the community reach of how it can deliver these goals. So it's a bit multifaceted. I get some opportunities with the flagship, sort of the symphony orchestra, both in terms of assisting various guest conductors and actually conducting an entire concert myself in the middle of this year, which is a real a real coup for me, you know, great fun. Uh, and then some of it's been working with the younger groups, especially when we were online, that was online rehearsals and uh, pulling things together for the performances that we did at the end of last year. And otherwise, it's sort of impromptu gigs and things that come up, some of which we'll talk about a bit later. Yeah, so it's not just... Uh a journey for you. You're also mentoring the the younger musicians as well. Absolutely. And I think that's a really strong part of what the fellowship is. And this idea that you can diversify your own skill level and experience by working with a range of of different musicians. Mm. So dare I ask, do they find you or do you find them? A bit of both, actually. So I really, um, I got in touch with Christopher Lawrence when, uh, when he was the artistic director at SYO and just said, look, I've come back from the States and we're sort of in the, the throes of 2020 and I'd love to see if there's anything that comes up, then please give me a ring. Uh, and he said, well, this fellowship will actually be coming up and you should um, sort of toss your name in. So I was lucky to put my name in and go through that process and it ended up okay for me. Right. You didn't have to do sort of 87 auditions. It's not that kind of process. <laughs> no, one one audition over the school holidays with sort of a, a who's around and available to come in and play Tchaikovsky 5 audition. Oh. Um, and that was loads of fun. Yeah, and you weren't conducting an empty room; you were conducting an orchestra. Actual people, yes, yes. thank goodness. A bit trial by fire, and um, <laughs> I think we're sort of between transitions of restrictions. So I think the strings were a bit spread out, and the woodwinds are like two and a half meters apart or something. Uh. So we had this not gigantic orchestra in a huge room, basically filling up the entire space. So you just feel like a a bit of those, um, you know, someone on the ground trying to wave flags around, just directing people of where they should be going. It's not your first youth orchestra that you've worked with because you're quite involved with youth orchestras in uh, your native Canberra. My native Canberra, exactly. So I uh, was the music director and conductor of Canberra Youth Orchestra from 2015, the middle of that year, through to the middle of 2019 when I went overseas. And you find working with youth orchestras rewarding, obviously. Oh, it's so much fun. There is um, a sort of wild, frenetic energy, which is this kind of, you know, chaotic good or chaotic evil, and it sort of goes either way. In the, on the day. Uh, and it just in terms of, by and large, it's the first time that everyone is seeing this music and people can get either very terrified or they can get very excited and just race off and do their own thing. Uh, thankfully, I must admit, that's not the case so much with SYO and they're really uh, either more prepared or more grounded and they make it look easier. Uh, but, you know, it can still be 
just a bit of a wild ride sometimes where things happen on the day and uh, and you go along with it. Mm. But the, what I really do love is a youth orchestra, everyone brings this real hunger and energy to what they're doing because they really want to be there. They're going out of their way on evenings or on weekends in the midst of usually a very busy school or study schedule and um, they just love it. And you really feed off that. Well, we have to have our first piece of music, uh, which is a bit of Vaughan Williams. And I believe there's a bit of a story, a bit of history with this work for you. There is indeed. So this next piece is called The Lark Ascending by, by Vaughan Williams. And uh, we were very lucky to just perform this uh, a couple of months ago in Shell Harbour with the Sydney Youth Orchestra and soloist Olivia Kavalik, who's our concertmaster this year. But it's also the very first orchestral piece that I conducted um, a little bit over 10 years ago. So I was just over the moon to revisit it and it's one of my favourites. And so I'm excited to share that with you. Richard Tonietti directing the Australian Chamber Orchestra for part of Vaughan Williams's The Lark Ascending, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, conductor Leonard Weiss. Well, Leonard, we, we often listen to music like that. It, it's, it's often been recorded by you know, a far-flung orchestra we may not have seen in person, but in that instance, it's actually a local one. Uh, where do you get your inspiration from when you're doing your preparations to conduct a work such as this? Oh, that's such a good question. It's a real mix. I, um, Having studied with Marin and just seen what she does and now I've sort of got her in my ear for different things of, you know, do it this way. And you've show, voice show in the your head, is there? <laughs> there is, yes. She said that's the goal of the study program is like the devil on your shoulder just saying, here are all the things you're probably doing wrong. <laughs> and uh, she's very good though. And uh, I often, if I can, I'll go to one of Marin's recordings just out of curiosity. There is uh, certainly a few um, composers that she really is quite fond of and has recorded a lot of their works. So um, something like the Dvorak 9, which we also did a few months ago with SYO, it's really interesting for me to see what has Marin done as opposed to the version that might be in my head. 
but then also just a, a mix of European recordings and, where possible, Australian recordings. I mean, we're very lucky here to have a range of world-class orchestras, uh, not just the SYO, but some of the others around about <laughs> Australia as well. Almost as good as the SYO. Almost as good as the SYO. I know, I've got very lucky. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're just um, stunning recordings. And it really amazingly, uh, a lot of recordings of new music as well put out by people who are living and working in this country. So mm. for some of them, you can even reach out and ask composers or conductors, how did you approach this piece? Um, not the case for the Lark Ascending because it's uh, sort of tried and tested in a way. But, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're certainly very lucky here. But nevertheless, you must have approached Lark Ascending recently post-Marin, if I can put it that way, yes, quite differently perhaps to that 10 or 11 years ago when it was the first piece. I definitely hope so. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really think so. It's um, The Lark Ascending, there are categories of pieces that I Lark fits into for me, um, as does something like Scheherazade, which I love to bits, where it's a lot easier to listen to than to conduct because you can just sit there and be sort of awash in these great tunes without having to do anything when you're listening to it. And when you're conducting it, you always find that you have to be so on the ball to really, especially, I mean, the Lyca sending is very sparse at times. So just making sure everyone knows where they are and feels confident about where and how they're about to play um, is so important. And you'd think it kind of just plays itself, but the more you assume it plays itself, the worse it's going to get, and very, very quickly. So you really just um, have to be sort of engaged with all of the musicians uh, every moment of what's going on there. And then, you know, a few spots where the soloist plays and you can really just relax and then everything's going to go okay. You can relax when the soloist is playing, can you? Well, <laughs> when the soloist is playing and no one else is doing much. Uh, <laughs> if you trust your soloist. So yes, that was lucky. You'd better. That's a, probably a good point. Um, now, I want to go back to your formative years, if I may. Um, I'm used to conductors when I speak to them are you really finding out that they started off learning something like the piano or the violin? But uh, I believe you had a less traditional start on, on instruments. I did. I discovered that I was very appalling at the violin, and I didn't like it much at all. Um, all credit to my teacher, who was wonderful and, and tried. Oh, so you did but give it, was it a not go. For me. Oh, for about three weeks. Ooh, it it didn't, didn't stick. Yeah, yes. Well, ages. I mean, when you're only a couple of years old, you know, that's half a lifetime. Uh, and I decided I'd like to learn the harp. So I was very lucky and had some lessons with Alice Giles and uh, played the harp all the way through school. I was just taken by it. It's a fascinating instrument and um, fits into a category of instruments where anything you play sounds really excellent. It's just a very beautiful sounding instrument, so it's hard to go wrong. It's just the glissando effect. Exactly. Uh... Yes, it's what I love about the harp, you know, doing sort of um, background music gigs or something, the sort of the less difficult the music is, the more people will say, wow, this is so amazing. You just play a C major arpeggio and they say, you must have been oh, playing for years. You know? <laughs> and you think, yes, I tuned it this morning. You know, Trade secrets, but it's uh, a little bit true sometimes. Well, well that, I mean, that obviously this is not a, uh, a harp masterclass we're about to go into, but I'm still very curious. I'm really curious about an instrument like the harp because I play the piano, not, not professionally, just for myself. But, you know, I understand it. I can see the keys and it all sort of works for me. Um, whereas with the harp, you've got all these identical-looking strings, I'd have thought, and, and the, the, the plucking motion. So surely doing a glissando is relatively easy, but doing it like a C major arpeggio yeah, surely watching is... what you're doing gets trickier. Yeah. Um, we have a very elegant colour-coding system, so all of the Cs are red and all of the Fs are sort of a blue-black oh, right. colour. So, um, so at least you have that kind of white the difference and, kind of thing. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it's okay. a bit like that. The sharps and flats turns into a funny minefield, depending on if you're on a, a lever harp or a pedal harp, and then you just have to relearn a totally different system, and then, you know, then all Cs will be... C sharp, for instance, if you um, have engaged your C sharp pedal or C flat or whatever you want. Right, okay. Uh, and then you can do some really funky things. 
but you can also forget what key you're in. So, uh, <laughs> you know, pros and cons. Best not to, I'd imagine. Yes. That's the, that's the, well, you'd be one of the soloists that your conductor would, uh, would be worried about. Would be very <laughs> untrusted, yes. Being there, yes. So, so how were you able to integrate your playing of the harp in with school music? I think surprisingly well. I went to Canberra Grammar School and they were really very keen to create new ways that I could be involved other than just being in the sort of school orchestra. Uh, I played in the guitar orchestra and often they just wrote new parts for me because obviously it was not a guitar. Oh, and guitar I could do some and good harp things. orchestra. Guitar and harp orchestra, I know. <laughs> Solo harp. And, uh, and otherwise sort of dabbled on a few instruments and sang and, and just tried to immerse myself as much as I could. Um, but it has some good things that you pick up from harp because you learn to sort of be a bit aware of what the rest of the ensemble is doing because you don't actually tend to be, you know, you're not solo violin and you're not playing all the time. Um, and, of course, you read treble and bass clefs. So it's a, a nifty pro to, to learn fairly yeah. early on. So the learning of music, the participating in, in music at school, uh, was that something that your, your parents were kind of guiding you into or, or were you kind of doing it despite them? Maybe initially they did. I think I really just jumped into it. It's, mm. it's so much fun. If anyone's listening, I mean, I'd say get involved and... Yeah, they, they're both very sort of musically enthusiastic and musically supportive. Right. So, but they're not professional musicians. Not right? professional musicians, no. So, uh, so mum played the the violin and then did quite a bit of ballet, and um, dad played piano and euphonium. So, I inherited no piano skills, sadly, but I inherited uh, trumpet from dad and had played trumpet for a long time, and then emigrated to French horn, which is uh, another yeah. unusual instrument. I know. I've just got stuck in the sort of back left of the orchestra. It's just all <laughs> the, the people you leave to their own devices, and you don't look up at them, and you just hope they can play. Uh, there's not a lot of repertoire for these instruments you have to say is there solo repertoire no it's fairly limited and uh, sadly I think that's really changing now and there are some sort of staples of the repertoire and that's you know that's sort of about it Mm. Um, but French horn is just so magnificent and unfortunately like the harp you're just exposed all the time because you're either probably playing sharp or flat you know there's there's very (laughs) it's just such a a tightrope of of just maintaining your place with an instrument like that And, and also I suppose with like unlike playing a violin where there's generally lots of you. There's only generally one harpist and one French horn player, isn't there? Well, in an orchestra, we're lucky and get uh, between two and four for a lot of pieces, um, which it depends. Well, in fact, a lot of orchestras now um, will have five uh, and you, you get this sort of bumper horn role, which is... It's one of my most fun to play because you generally don't have the pressure of all of the solo lines. You just get to play anything that's really loud. So the first player can save <laughs> their chops a bit. Uh, so that's that's good fun. Uh, but, I mean, horn's great because, again, you get to figure out where do you fit in the section. It's not that often that you have the tune, and so you're really becoming a bit aware of what um, harmony role do I have and, and how does that serve the rest of the ensemble. So how do you get from the harp and the French horn to conducting? Were you just sick of sort of sitting in that corner oh, of the... Uh, sick of being told what to do. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. I, uh, it's through composition for me. So I discovered that I liked writing pieces when I was um, going through sort of very early secondary school and I thought that was loads of fun. And I wrote a few pieces and in fact I wrote my very first piece at a very young age and I either can't remember or shouldn't say what that age was, but I, I wrote a piece for the, the guitar orchestra that I played in and... Uh, the wonderful conductor of the orchestra said, we'll play this piece at our concert if you conduct it. So I just stood there you know, like a really, really wooden robot and looked at the one kid in front of me and just didn't do anything. Him. I didn't turn the pages <laughs> and didn't do anything. And it just, and it worked okay. Um, you kept not the highlight you were, me- you were a metronome. I, maybe I was a metronome. You know, <laughs> that would be generous if I was a successful metronome. Uh, but that was, that was fun. And Certainly not something I really ever wanted to do again, um, but it was interesting. 
And then by the time I was studying at uni, I was helping out with a few community orchestras and uh, was lucky to just be asked to step in once or twice and and take the odd rehearsal or a bit of a rehearsal. Uh, and that's when I conducted the Lark Ascending as well. And I just discovered it's such um, a unique way of interfacing with the music because you're not technically playing all of the notes, um, which I love because I, I'm not sitting in my room practicing scales for four hours a day and, and having to maintain those instrumental chops. But at the same time, I can really dig in and say, what do I want this to sound like? And not just mm. the, that one bit of the piece, but even down to what do I want that part to sound like with this note or, you know, you can get um, a bit obsessed with these little details. And then you can work with sort of crafting that and being um, maybe an ensemble communicator is a, a friendly term for that. So it's really fascinating. Um, of course, the problem is instead of sitting in your room for four hours a day practicing scales, you just sit in your room staring at a book of music for four hours a day. So similar problem of being <laughs> in a room by yourself. <laughs> yeah, marking up Boeings and, and thinking about existential questions like, is this B-flat really? Is that, I wonder if that's a typo. You know, oh, uh, that's you can do all sorts ground. of funny things. I don't, <laughs> just don't change it. Uh, yeah, so it's, doesn't that mean you have to look up the other four published scores and find out whether they've all got the B flat in them? Absolutely does. Yes, you can become um, a bit of what friends like to call an archaeologist, it's where you just sit there and you go back to the original source material and you find scanned manuscripts and you start digging through and then you say, ah, look, this is interesting. And the bassoon originally doubled the cello here, but someone took it out in editing. And was that the composer or was that another marking in a recording? And you just, oh. yeah, there's a certain point where it becomes far too much. Uh, but this idea for me of of interfacing with with people, uh, not only just just with musicians, but but also with musicians, a whole orchestra or a whole choir, where you just sort of have to think about how do you help people work together and and how do you try and um, maximize what they have to give and really bring out their best. It's an amazingly privileged position, if you like, because I I really. You know, Lark Ascending, I couldn't play anything more than the four open strings on violin, um, and yet the performance went across really well. So, thank goodness. Well, thank goodness indeed. Well, some more music now, and we're going to have the, a bit of West Side Story, um, Bernstein's Symphonic Dances. Why have you chosen this one? Oh, it's a really cool piece. But uh, Aside I, from that. <laughs> aside from it being a really cool piece, when I get to do uh, my standalone concert with the SYO in a couple of months, uh, I was chatting with Christopher Lawrence about this for the programming and we decided it should have kind of an American theme of the concert uh, and I suggested a few sort of staple American pieces which are a little bit out there and he came back and said, how about West Side Story? Because sort of the lineage of Leonard Bernstein to Marin, um, to me as a conducting student and Marin obviously is a huge champion of Bernstein's music and uh, so I got to joke to Marin that suddenly her early career music has become my early career music via inheritance. So I'm very, very grateful to be conducting the, uh, the symphonic dances from West Side Story with the SYO in just a couple of months and this is just a hugely exuberant bit of music, so why not?
Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic Orchestra for his own symphonic dances from West Side Story. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the conductor, Leonard Weiss. So going back to your university era, you actually did want to study composition at first at university rather than conducting. I did. I, I did my undergrad in composition, which uh, was very interesting. And I had a lot of fun with it. And then by the time I'd finished the degree... I uh, had done well and written a bunch of pieces and was lucky to get a few commissions and a couple of awards. Um, and I just thought, this isn't really... Pushing your buttons? Well, I don't know. I like doing it. Mm. I, I like composing. I like arranging. I get to arrange and orchestrate things on occasion, mm. um, more than writing my own pieces, which I should be doing more of. But I, I don't know. I, conducting sort of came into my mind as something that was interesting. And, and after my undergrad... My parents were really keen that I do a master's degree in teaching, which I, I did, and then have done a bit of teaching here and there. And it's very useful just to have that. And this understanding of learning, I think, is really interesting. And maybe that's why I've um, wound up doing quite a bit of youth orchestra work as well. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I like composing, but then you sort of want something immediate as well. I mean, uh, composing really is the maximum of number of hours spent in room versus hours of liaising with actual real people. Uh, uh, and conducting is... Not always the other way, but can be a bit the other way with just a lot of real time um, actually engaging with other other people, and that's probably pretty healthy. Hmm. So your, your explosion of you know conducting thanks to the lark ascending and so on. I mean, it, it obviously the opportunities must sort of just flow one after the other. If, if you didn't sort of ah uh, yes, I mean you, you must have had to go and study conducting somewhere after that or before that. I I stretched that out for a long, long, long time and I was lucky to learn on the job in a way of just working with different groups and you discover really, really quickly if something doesn't work because mm. it is not what you want or they're not even together or something has gone wrong uh, and you discover more slowly if something has worked because you don't really notice if everything's just chugging along smoothly. So in 2016 probably, I started having a couple of lessons with Richard Gill and that was very, just so grounding. Um, I mean, obviously, Richard is someone who just knows everything about everything. And his ability to identify problems that I could fix instantly was amazing. So that was a huge revelation for me. And then I participated in the Australian Conducting Academy run through the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra and Johannes Fritsch, who's their principal guest conductor in residence. So I did that for a couple of years. And that also just turned everything I knew um, on its head very quickly mm. and was incredibly useful. And after all those years uh, and just working with different orchestras in Canberra and, and around and about, it seemed like I should um, bite the bullet and go and do it properly. So that's how I wound up in the States. Right. Well, we'll come to the States a little bit later, but the, being musical director and, and conductor of the National Capital Orchestra, that's before the States? Yeah, correct. So how does that opportunity come about? Because that's quite a significant uh, That was a job. lot of fun. Uh, and so that came up. I first conducted them in 2012. I, Funnily enough, I'd been recruited to play percussion for one, one or two concerts. Play percussion? Um, yeah, I'm not a percussionist, so it was a very... Um, graceful choice of whoever invited me to do that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was okay enough. And um, back then, the, the National Capital Orchestra had uh, a concerto um, concert every year. At the end of the year, they would just ask members from the orchestra to pick a movement out of something, um, and they could choose a conductor. So I was lucky that the clarinetist who was playing with them at the time um, wanted to conduct the um, Ludoswowski dance preludes for clarinet and orchestra, which... Um, now that I look at the score, is not too bad. But certainly when I looked at it in 2012, was fiendish and evil. And it's full of multimeter and it's very confusing. And um, <laughs> so we had a lot of fun. And I remember going through this just thinking, 
you know, thank goodness this is all holding together. I mean, it's just trying to understand what's going on in the score can be a bit uh, challenging at that time, not really knowing what I was doing. And I was lucky to, to do that with them. And um, the orchestra were very kind. They said, we'd love to see you come back and do some more stuff. So I uh, conducted a lot of their concerto concert in 2013. And um, 2014 stepped in to do one of their main main series concerts. And uh, then the beginning of 2015. And then they asked me to be music director. Mm. So it is, it is always sort of bit by bit, isn't it? You get this opportunity, then you get that opportunity, and then suddenly Absolutely. They, keep, and they keep asking you back. Yes, I like to think <laughs> it, it's sort of uh, just a big house of cards. You know, it's all built on this one idea that you don't really know what you're doing, but you're giving it a go anyway. Um, and suddenly I find myself here, just up the front of uh, the SYO, for instance, just really trying to exude uh, calm and confidence, and <laughs> then they play very well. So clearly it's worked out fine. Do you ever, do you ever have to say no to something? I do actually. I've I was really bad at this for a few years, and I would just say yes to everything and and overlap schedules, and you know, and everyone was okay with it. But it was just awful juggling. Um, and luckily, in in the past uh, couple of years, I've been in the, the lucky position of being able to say no either due to concert clashes mm. or just to say, look, this isn't. I don't think I'm a good fit for this project. Uh, and have you considered, you know, such and such one of my colleagues and, and other friends who. Maybe it's just more their sort of music or maybe it's um, interstate and it would just suit them better because they're there and the travel doesn't really work that easily or whatever. Mm. Uh, it's a great privilege to to actually be able to decline things and to say hopefully we can do something in future and, you know, you mm. have my number, please call again. It does again. take a bit of confidence there, doesn't it? As you it, say, it does. That, you know, oh my I'm, God, will they ask me back again? Exactly. I'm always <laughs> worried that then you say no and then you've written your name off forever. But who knows? If nothing else, it's really flattering to get the invitation and to be considered for... Um, just any opportunity to work with people you haven't worked with before. Now, our next bit of music is um, something you described to me before as a curveball. What have you got for us now? I think so. So this next bit of music is a theme music from Antarctica by Vangelis. And it's something that I grew up to as a, a very, very young child. Um, and I'm told that basically it would, it would put me to sleep if I was just, um, you know, it was bedtime. And so we would just listen to the calming sounds probably on repeat of Vangelis. And it's something that um, has stuck with me as a very, a very calming piece. So it seemed like a, a good bit of relaxation after that West Side Story.
the theme from Antarctica by Evangelis. Soporific, apparently, according to my guest in the studio today, the conductor Leonard Weiss. But Leonard, you are about, um, dare I suggest, about 15 or 20 years too young to, to be really familiar with this music. I'm probably not the ideal sort of Evangelis marketing crowd, um, <laughs> but it's really stuck with me. And it's so iconic. I mean, you have composers like uh, Evangelis is just a bit after someone like Wendy Carlos and this sort of very early synthesizer era. But it's really just such um, a defining sound. And of course, the Vangelis soundtracks, when you look into um, Blade Runner and then these sorts of really chariots of fire iconic, or Chariots most, of Fire, yeah, absolutely. Famous, I, um, I mean, defined an era, really. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. It defines for me, it defines yeah, kind of that early It defines an period. era that I wasn't in, that you per se. In. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, and yet, you know. To... But what do you like? I mean, you know, you've got those childhood memories, but, uh, but how do you think it, it holds up now as... You know, in, in the, oh, in the great collection great. of contemporary music from the late 20th century. Yeah. I, look, I really think it's very good. Vangelis has – it's not minimalism, but there's this idea of I think less is more. And it's mm. very sort of subtly textured and built up in a way that is um, often a very simple melody and a very simple harmony. And that really speaks to people. So I, I get swept away by it. Uh, it's also a lot of fun hearing these – pieces that are largely synthesized because that's not the area that I work in. I really, mm. I, I don't even do live sound, you know, it's sort of, I just, it's live people making music. And this idea of synthesized music and, and sort of post-processed um, sounds just fascinates me because it's something that I know so little about. Have you ever had to integrate electronic music into a concert of yours? Very, very rarely. Um, you know, amplified instruments, sure, but not too many sound effects. With uh, we did Pines of Rome with the the Nightingale recording. That was a lot of fun. Uh, weirdly, actually, at Peabody, I played um, synthesizer piano for a new piece, um, and it was the second time the piece had been, I think, ever played. And it was this amazing collection of it was sort of like this jazz fusion contemporary piece that went for about an hour. And my synthesized piano part had all of these voice takes from different Black American historic figures so i played leontine price and there was a bit of like ray charles or something and just these little voice snippets and it was very weird because you sit there and it, you know the note is written f sharp or something and you play f sharp and then this line screams through the pa and you think oh my goodness did, I do, I, did I do something wrong <laughs> uh and then you bump three keys and then you get 15 different voice effects all at once and then the conductor glared at me uh but that was <laughs> that was very funny and there was one there was a bit in the middle of it where i had to play this sort of backing kind of drum rhythm, but it was all all text overlay. So I'm here playing my sort of percussive piano cue with quite rudimentary piano skills. And uh, and it's sort of this weird human voice beatbox thing in the background. So that's been the highlight of synthesized music in concert for me. And uh, if I don't dabble any further than that, I'll probably You'll be, be okay. happy. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, you were saying the Litoslavsky score was looked complicated when you first approached it. Yeah. Well, the problem with this is the score looks really easy, uh -huh. but then what you play is not the sound you expect. You know, I can deal with transposing instruments or just, or different notation or something, but this is just really clear notation and you press it and you know, out of the recording is Leontine Price singing for 15 seconds and you just think, huh? I hope you know, right. What's going on? I mean, it sounds great, but it's nothing to do with me. I just pressed, you know, pressed this key. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Anyway, you mentioned uh, before Antarctica about uh, going overseas and it was the uh, a great opportunity that you got with the Peabody Institute. Was going overseas just the next logical step? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, both fortunately and unfortunately still the sort of curse 
of Australia where you get to a certain level and they say, now, in order to proceed any further, you really should go and get experience that's not here. Mm. And when you go overseas, you really realize and appreciate why that is. But it's also frustrating because you get there and, you know, the people that study at Juilliard, I mean, come from all over the world, for instance, but a whole bunch are from America. So these these institutions we just idolize um, are just down the road for so many people. But anyway, uh, so it, it was just, for me, really, the next logical step. And I thought if I didn't go do it then, I could be really happy where I was and I could stay there and that would be okay. And that was really good. But then there's also this idea of I can always come back to that. I was just so grateful to be with very supportive um, musicians and and work and people that said you should go and embrace this idea and this challenge. And then if you don't like it, then, you know, come back in a year or two and just pick up where you left off. Mm. So you talk about Juilliard, people, you know, being down the road, et cetera, et cetera, over there. Was it intimidating when you walked in on the first day? Peabody's funny because it's, you know, it, it is the oldest conservatory in the U.S., and yet has somehow escaped the sort of um, monolithic reputation of Juilliard. Uh, and yet it's one of the top performing conservatories in the country. So you walk in and the sort of the main um, foyer and the library are some of the oldest buildings in downtown Baltimore. And it's just this sort of classic, elegant, just very classy American architecture. And that is just kind of a bit daunting. Uh, but then you walk into the classrooms and it's just... A room, like any other classroom, is a room. There's a piano and some chairs, so it's not too bad when you get into the swing of things. Yeah. So tell me about what you learnt there that you weren't going to learn here. Oh, it's a great question. Marin was intimidating. That not after you get to know her, but definitely that first class. That was that was terrifying. (laughs) Um, What did I get to know there? I I think Marin is. uh, I was just immensely apart from the voice on your shoulders. Exactly. Um, That's that's one thing. This. this idea of, I think at Peabody, again through Marin, because she was heading up the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra at that time, so there's such a strong link between Peabody and the BSO, and by and large, the repertoire that we were doing um, each week, especially when Marin was there, was also the repertoire she was conducting with the BSO at the end of that week. So we would walk in, and she would work with us really intently, uh, intensely on Monday and Tuesday, and then you'd go and sit in her rehearsals Wednesday, Thursday, and see the show on Friday night, and then you would see, ah, I still have so much to learn, you know, but here's how, here's how the pros do it. And that was just an amazing, an amazingly excellent link in how the program works. So you can get a bit of hands-on experience, but then also appreciate how one of the best professional orchestras in the country operates. Mm. Other than that, it's just an amazing school. I mean, there's, there are some incredible um, faculty members and very diverse opportunities there. So I was lucky to conduct uh, an entire new music opera by Kaya Sariaho called Emily, which was beautiful. Um, I didn't pick it for music selection because it's 70 minutes of atonal music. But uh, it, if anyone wants to look up Kaya Sariaho in their own time, uh, it's just very... I noticed uh, you haven't selected it for today. I haven't selected it, no, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it, very captivating stuff. And this you you get put into parts of the system there where it's just sort of things are ingrained, especially when you look at maybe how to analyze a piece of music and this structural analysis and melodic analysis. And some people, they just really like eat that stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And here, I think we've kind of tried to shelve music theory a little bit. Uh, and especially even since I graduated, it seems to be less and less of a focus that people look at theory and oral skills. Uh, and a lot of that is so entrenched in the American system. For me, it was just... Well, really, it's just Marin. And the fact that the pedagogical approach is so thoroughly developed and so 
I guess, so persistently advised uh, is that sounds a bit mean, but but just this idea that you also have that guidance every week. So what you, uh, I mean, Australia has a few excellent conducting programs, um, and there's one. Johannes runs one in Queensland, and uh, Luke Dolman runs one in Adelaide, and there is one in um, Western Australia as well. And I know very little about it. But all great programs. And what this offers you is the fact that you are just doing it more often and you're doing it more often with someone standing over your shoulder saying, that's great, but you can do it better. Mm. And that's really what I needed. And being at somewhere like Peabody, you're just surrounded by people from an even bigger pond um, who are telling you that and watching other people with more diverse experiences um, and seeing how they interact as your colleagues as well uh, with with themselves and with the orchestras. So... uh, yeah, it's very it's very eye opening. Mm. I, I often imagine these sort of masterclass type scenarios. You you are almost learning through osmosis uh, rather than. I mean, it's it's not so much a classroom where there's a lecturer at the front sort of saying and uh, turn to page forty seven of the textbook. It it is just that now kind move of your arm a little bit further to the left. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and you've nailed no, not it. Not like that. <laughs> no, uh, it's you know it's very funny. We there was this throwaway line. Uh, so we had most of our conducting classes with Marin or with Joseph Young, who's director of ensembles at Peabody and was one of Marin's students uh, about fifteen years ago. And so that's great because you then you had just had this very homogenous approach and Joseph said something in one class like he um you know still goes back and looks at these videos with with Marin and the things that he's being told and and the things that you're being told in the moment aren't things that you change in the moment it's not like your technique is just instantly refreshed every five minutes and and you're a new whiz-bang conductor so funnily enough I actually find some of the things I'm doing now, and I thought this at the SYO Shell Harbour concert, this idea um, of beating uh, more horizontally. So you get um, really conveying to the strings and, and the winds and brass, this idea of breadth, for instance, which I very much did not do that. So this is one thing that Marin really said, look, you'll find this is useful. And I tried it out and it didn't make any sense at all. Uh, I just, it wasn't for me. And I've got... Um, these very unfortunate videos where she just keeps stopping me and saying, just do it like this. And I'm like, no, I, I just, <laughs> I, you know, it just feels very counterintuitive. But then having let that simmer in my subconscious for two years, I get to do that on stage and it feels brilliantly organic and they deliver a better sound. So the advice has been worthwhile. The advice actually worked. Well, then it was worth going to Baltimore <laughs> yeah. then. It was impacted by COVID though, the experience, wasn't it? Unfortunately, yeah. yes. Uh, so we, uh, it's, well, I started the middle of 2019 um, for a two-year master's degree, of which I've completed half of my schooling because I came back in the middle of 2020. Uh, so I spent a couple of months online when all the COVID stuff started to happen. And I was lucky to have got almost all of my really great experiences in um, for that year before that happened. We uh, missed out on a masterclass with the Baltimore Symphony, but we also gained a masterclass with the National Symphony Orchestra in DC and Gin Andrea Nozeda um, when their um, Asia tour got cancelled right at the start of March. So that was very lucky for us. Then I, I just thought I, studying conducting is something you just need to be there in person, especially as an international student who appreciate the idea of being there physically in person on campus with these people. And uh, sadly, it didn't look like that was an option. And in fact, they stayed remote for the entirety of 2020 after March. So I was very grateful that things in Australia were really opening up and conditions were excellent. And I, I came back and um, Melissa, who's the artistic director of Sydney Symphony, Melissa King, 
just invited me to come and um, sit in SSO rehearsals as much as they were incredibly limited and see Simone work and see other guest conductors work. So that's been a lot of what I've done for the past year or so. But that, um, that degree is now kind of on hold. Until... That degree is just on hold uh, so seemingly endlessly it. until things things get back together. Marin's been a great support and she just said, if you can go somewhere and see real people and work with real people and Do get that. podium time, mm. then go there. And um, the school had the best, no questions asked, leave policy imaginable. They oh, just great. said, yep. And and a lot of people um, took leave and just went to work for a year and, you know, recoup their student debt in the States or whatever it is that people do. And, uh, you know, the school really, really respected that. And funnily enough, a lot of students at Peabody then have continued on into a DMA there. So they've um, been able to sort of continue how they, um, you know, just learning with the same students and learning with the same teachers uh, so I think it's worked out reasonably well, but I'm certainly grateful to have been in Australia and really maximised the opportunities that I've been offered here. Mm. Now, they did give you the Rising Star Award of 2020. That's pretty significant, isn't it? That was very exciting. I think I was managed to to maybe um, get into that through Emily, which was this, this wonderful new opera. Um, and the, the BSO the fellowship. The atonal so, one. The wonderful atonal <laughs> one, yes, which I recommend very highly, but not highly enough to play for our listeners. Uh, no, it, it is magnificent. It just can be a bit alienating. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I was um, keen to just jump into any and every opportunity, and especially being so far from home. You just want to fully immerse yourself in the, the culture there and the musical experiences and get everything out of it that you can. So... Not to say I had the world's best GPA, but I also did double the number of courses than the minimum number of courses. So I just really tried to make use of to, the time. Yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. to do everything. And um, yeah, I was just very honoured to receive that. It is a pretty sub- substantial accolade given the. the uh, well, given the calibre of peers. other students there. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That for me was one of the most incredible. Um, incredible facets of being at Peabody and it's not even the peers um, in the conducting department who are truly amazing but just watching um, your colleagues within our conductors orchestra or or singers or other people there um, I mean one of the students who was in my master's year the next year uh, was then working at the Met as a young artist Mm. for instance and others who have got full-time orchestra jobs coming straight out of school or have gone on to like Juilliard for a DMA or moved to Europe and got these amazing jobs and then you think, wow, you know, these people are really great people to know. And just uh, just watching the way they work and, and how they play their instruments is a, a little masterclass in itself. Well, our final piece of music is uh, something else. And this is not, not so much a curveball. This is uh, something I find quite exciting. A bit of the Four Seasons Recomposed. Now, I think, first of all, you have to tell us what the Four Seasons Recomposed actually is. Sure. So, obviously, the original Four Seasons is um, a lovely set of concerti by Vivaldi. And this German... I guess, contemporary minimalist composer called Max Richter um, took the music from the Four Seasons and he would say recomposed it. I think it's brilliantly clever because you have, it's not even a motif, you might just have one little melodic snippet, you know, sort of ideas that are too small to be a, a long idea, but just this tiny fragment of an idea. And he then stretches that out into becoming the basis of each movement in this this very minimalist tradition. So for me, it is... Um, almost this most beautiful refreshment of baroque music slash really organic 21st century composition and I just think it's an amazingly clever piece but also a brilliantly listenable piece.
just a small part of the Four Seasons recomposed and recomposed by Max Richter. That was the choice of my guest in conversation today, conductor Leonard Weiss. Now, I imagine you are constantly needing to search for the next opportunity. And you were saying before that they do tend to be dropping into your lap and you have the the luxury of, of saying no to things. What about that earlier period of perhaps being rejected? How hard's that? Oh, it's not even the earlier period. I think there are. It's very healthy to to put yourself out there. So um, whether that means being interviewed for something that you think you know could be a stretch, um, but is a worthwhile fit. You know, it's something you think you'd rise to the challenge, for instance. Uh, so there are definitely um, positions uh, that I've gone for or auditions that I've gone for that, you know, they say, wow, thanks very much. Blank <laughs> stare. And you think, oh, OK. Um, and just getting used to that, too. I so mean, the don't call us, don't call you. Don't, exactly. Don't call yeah. Our people you. won't call your people. <laughs> and uh, But look, before going to Peabody, I um, had auditioned around uh, to a couple of other schools and um, got a few offers, but also didn't get other offers and the both the audition process of going to auditions and seeing what different people ask for and, and how they go about this process um, is very useful as is the feedback that they give you and I think if there's one thing I've really found over the past year and a half or so especially um, musicians and people in general I think are becoming more and more generous to share their own um, thoughts and feedback so the best thing I could say to to younger musicians in particular is really Put yourself out there. Um, you will, even if you receive many good offers, receive twice as many rejections as you do offers. And that's great. You know, if you don't get that opportunity, then another good opportunity will come up. Unfortunately, you know, you can just get strings of rejections and then having to keep putting yourself out there. It gets a bit tiring. Uh, <laughs> but you just need to keep doing it because really great opportunities uh, do come up. Now, we've had quite a, a nice varied selection of music uh, from you today, but is there, a, is there a particular composer or era or style that you most gravitate to? Oh, that is a very interesting question. There, there are so many great people that I could list. Um, I, for me, I'm really trying to program um, a lot of new music as much as I can, and uh, it can be a bit of a gamble, but I think there's so much that is um, undervalued that's being written by people who are still alive. Uh, of course, we have the sort of traditionally um, marginalised and overlooked groups of composers, and I'm uh, doing my best to to sort of change these one, one very small step at a time. Uh, but there's so much good music just across the board, and what I love about this is they're composers that are alive and you can reach out to them and say hey what is do you think really about this F? piece <laughs> exactly is it really like this uh and i've been very thankful especially with the national capital orchestra when i was in canberra we uh we had one australian piece in just about every concert and by and large the composers came down and they would do a pre-concert talk and they'd sit in rehearsals and that's such a great way to learn what does this person want and as the conductor how can i best channel that and then you get that idea in your head too for looking at at older music so even being able to pick up um, maybe the original four seasons for instance thinking what did vivaldi want here and almost making it feel to the audience like the piece is being composed for them in real time in the performance um just this idea of filling filling every every moment of a piece with purpose and with energy and and interest um so i gravitate to to new music for that but uh really there's so much out there that's excellent so well you obviously like the combination with that four seasons recomposed are, are you tempted to do you know beethoven fifth recomposed or something oh i've definitely thought of my fair share of, of awful names like you know beethoven undead or um <laughs> oh great <laughs> i think without it being hooked on classics exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i maybe a different station it would <laughs> grungy evening beethoven shows um i don't know i think it's very easy to 
to really shoot yourself in the foot with stuff like this. And you listen to um, the recent Beethoven um, Symphony Number no. Ten that was completed by AI and premiered mm. with the some orchestra in in London, maybe. And you just uh, it can sound so artificial. And if you uh, what I really like about the Richter is it's really very very small ideas, and then that is almost the extent of the source material's involvement. So it's not like he's trying to go through the journey of each movement of the four seasons with the musical material provided in the original by Vivaldi. Because I think that's when you run into pitfalls and you hear ideas like this for for Beethoven or, or Mozart and you can have this one great melody and then people try and rehash it in some way and you know put a techno beat underneath it or something. And, <laughs> and you just, for me, it doesn't... Uh, he doesn't have quite the same level of sophistication um, as the Richter, but also then it doesn't have the, the same level of accessibility either, where you can really t- totally tune out, and the Richter is a beautiful new piece of music with themes that Richter didn't write. So it, it's, a, for me, a really fascinating example of um, where modern music can go. Well, that sounds like an ideal place to end it. Leonard Weiss, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Simon. Conductor Leonard Weiss. He'll be conducting the Sydney Youth Orchestra on the 26th of June and also that month conducting Mozart's Cosi Fantute with the National Opera in Canberra. Well, that's all for this edition of In Conversation. Thanks for joining me. Remember, you can find the program in podcast form at 2mbsfinemusicsydney.com slash inconversation or from wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.